Welcome to BMO Smarter Investing, the new podcast series that's all about helping you make smarter investment decisions. Join top BMO economists, Douglas Porter, Sal Guattari, and Jennifer Lee each month as they discuss the latest market developments and insight. Together with a panel of special guests, they'll take a deep dive into topics, trends, and forecasts that are relevant to new and experienced investors. Hi, I'm Sal Guattari. Welcome to our third podcast of the Smarter Investing series. Today, Art Wu will discuss China's economy and risks. Joining us will be Jennifer Lee. Art, let's start with what is probably the main question on, on everyone's mind about China. How is the world's second largest economy doing right now? Yes, well, just let me start off by saying that I don't think China is on the verge of a major economic or financial crisis, which always seems to pop up into the media headlines. But the economy is struggling, arguably the most since 2015-16. Consumer spending, fixed investment have slowed substantially since the middle of last year, when the country was really hit by a confluence of unexpected events, a high-profile regulatory crackdown on education, online gaming, the Evergrande debt crisis, and then a, a power crisis and of late, more sporadic COVID outbreaks. However, the the manufacturing sector is providing a valuable anchor to the economy. Merchandise exports continue to chug along at around a 20% year-on-year clip when measured on US dollar terms. And manufacturing PMIs have crept up into positive territory. So overall, we think the quarter-quarter reading, which is due out in the next couple of weeks, likely to come in at around the 3 to 4% year-on-year range, uh, down from 5%. So overall, not too bad. But just taking a step back, you know, we estimate that China's economy likely grew around 8% for the whole of 2021, you know, fall on a 2.3% rise in 2020. So in totality, China's grown roughly 5% since the pandemic began. So this really explains why China as the second largest economy, as you mentioned, remains a critical driver to to the global economy. And what's your outlook for uh, 2022? We have a, I would say, a cautiously optimistic take on the Chinese economy, at least from a short-term growth perspective. We think GDP is likely to come in around 5% uh, based on the assumption that China will be able to contain Omicron. We expect the authorities really to make a strong effort to stabilize the economy and sort of try to reverse, you know, the slowdown in recent months, given that this year is such an important year in the political calendar. The Communist Party is set to hold its, you know, 20th National Congress, likely in the later part of the year. And that will determine with whether President Xi will be able to secure a third term as president which is highly likely to be the case, but he can't afford to let the economy slide and worse, slip into a deep recession. So this explains why we had, like, say, twin decisions last month to ease monetary policy, you know, cutting the loan prime rate and easing the bank and sector's reserve requirements. However, we really think that authorities really need to rely more on fiscal stimulus. It's old, but tried, you know, infrastructure spending, 
But China isn't likely to sort of resort to cash handouts like in the West, which have boost, you know, consumer spending. So that part of the economy is likely to remain sort of sluggish. All right, if I can just jump in, have they actually penciled in what their official growth target is uh, yet for this year? Because I find that each year it seems to get lower and lower. Like, let's go back to like 2019. It was a range of like six, six and a half percent. They obviously skipped setting one in 2020. And then they said, quote, more than 6% in 2021. So it doesn't even make sense to have a target anymore. And I find that usually when, when I'm talking to people, they, they say when they hear the target, the basic assumption is that, oh, then the target shall be. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I sort of agree. The growth target probably isn't necessary, you know, as the economy has changed so much in recent years. First off, the leaders of provincial governments, they're not measured or gauge on achieving high growth rates like in the past. And really, the key point is the authorities aren't really concerned about the quantity of growth. They're concerned about the quality of growth. Financial stability, as an example, is, is, a, key, is a key driver of, of how they manage the economy. So probably not, but at the end of the day, it does provide a signal to what, you know, what the authorities are trying to accomplish. So right now, no official target's been released, uh, likely to be released probably in March when the National People's Congress meets, which is effectively their parliament. So what I would suspect is they'll probably put in a conservative target of around 5%, maybe even more conservative, 4.5%, but they're going to put a lot of qualifiers around it. So maybe growth grows around 5% or about 5%. So that's how I see that sort of panning out. So overall, China's economy downshifting. Um, it's not the 8% growth of last year. It's not even the 6% uh, targeted growth of earlier years. But you know, upwards of 5%, I think uh, most countries would uh, would die for that type of type of growth. But of course, you now let's turn to the risk to that outlook now. And I, wouldn't it be fair to conclude they're probably skewed towards the downside, just given the power crisis, the downturn in housing, and of course, Omicron? There's no doubt I couldn't agree more. And, it, and the reality, it's difficult to engineer a turnaround. It's something that you just can't automatically do, even though they do have a lot of policy levers at their disposal, as I've mentioned. However, I, just to tackle each one of your points, the power crisis, I think it's almost moved into the rear view mirror. Coal supply and imports have been ramped up. Uh, the risk of further power shortage is quite limited, especially as we head into the Chinese New Year, as factories sort of actually wind down a little. More importantly, the risk of a deeper downturn in the housing market, which obviously can't be discounted, but I think that situation is likely going to stabilize in the com coming months as local governments have stepped in to ease pressures. They've asked banks, you know to speed up mortgage approvals, ensure good projects, receive funding. Some local governments have provided subsidies to first-time home buyers. So there's a possibility that sales could bottom in the coming month. But make no doubt about it, you know, the downturn in the housing market and the related downturn in construction activity is going to be a drag on the economy this year. So sales are likely going to be down 10 to 20% in the next few months yet. But the good news, and I, I want to say, is the economy isn't going to get stuck with a huge glut of inventories, which would be more worrying. Or so put another way, we often get asked, is, is this 
China's Lehman moment. And we don't think that is the case. I think the biggest risk, as you point out, it's definitely the zero COVID strategy. You know, whether effectively that strategy can contain the Omicron variant, which is obviously leading to, you know, in the news to more, you know, uh, sporadic lockdowns. And obviously this has larger impacts for the global economy in terms of supply chains and potentially fanning global inflationary pressure. But I think it's reasonable to believe that China has proven quite adept at, you know, getting on top of outbreaks because of their stringent policies. They're very well coordinated. So I think the risks of, let's say, Omicron overrunning the country and leading to a widespread and prolonged lockdown doesn't appear to be high. So, but that is by far the biggest risk. I guess everyone's top of mind problem now is uh, inflation and I'd like to dig into that a little bit. Uh, now, the latest data for, for China suggests headline CPI uh, still pretty low at around 2%, but producer price inflation closer to 15%. Also appears that China is beginning to, to export inflation. How do you reconcile all of this? Yeah, I'll have to admit, making sense of China's inflation story isn't so easy. But I think the straightforward answer is that consumer demand remains very weak. Uh, and it's been dragged down by the pandemic. Uh, this is highlighted by the fact that the retail sales figures, they've remained in the low single digits. And if you deflate them by inflation, they're very low, especially compared to pre-pandemic uh, levels. So retailers, manufacturers, they simply can't pass on higher prices, unlike here in the West, which has been, you know, where the West have aided consumers by large cash handouts. You also have to remember the purchase and price index. It only accounts for goods. You know, services is more than 50% of the, of the consumption basket. And services is, as I've mentioned previously, it's been depressed by COVID outbreaks. So more people are staying at home than would otherwise be the case. You know, there's, there's another perhaps harder to quantify aspect behind the low CPI number is that, you know, competition in China's mid and downstream sectors, it's incredibly fierce. So companies really need to absorb higher costs of, of raw materials and even energy rather than losing, risk losing market share. But on the flip side, the ongoing boom in global goods demand, it's providing China and many other Asian manufacturers a valuable outlet to to pass on higher prices or, or jack up prices and, and protect their profit margins. And they're definitely taking greater advantage of this. Look, China doesn't provide uh, actually export price indices, but if you look around its neighbors, like the likes of Korea and Taiwan, which may have a similar you know, export basket, their prices are growing, their export prices that is, they're averaging around 15 to 20% year on year growth right now. So. That it, that's providing a valuable outlet for you know manufacturers in China. Okay, so that definitely doesn't sound like it's great news for the near-term global inflation inflation pictures. But okay, I wonder if we can just sort of shift gears a bit and take a step back. Um, I want to talk about China's longer-term future. I want to talk about children. I want to talk about kids. So I remember when China eased its one-child policy program back in 2015. And there are like all these expectations of a big increase in demand for anything baby related, like diapers and baby food and formula. 
That did not happen. And since then, they've actually eased policy even further. And now fam families, I think, can now have about three kids. So what are the longer term effects of this? Like, is China ever, ever going to have a baby boom? Yeah, you know what? This is a great question because I think this is really what investors should be thinking about, where China is heading in the longer term, because that's what the authorities are clearly focused on, which is highlighted in their latest five-year plan. And it really explains why the regulatory crackdown took place. It also explains the Evergrande debt crisis, why China has been hard on, on the housing market and, and this whole new term, the common prosperity agenda, which is there to address income qualities because all of these developments relate back to your question on you know, the new three-child policy, which was formally passed into law last August. In a nutshell, the authorities are extremely worried about the country's demographics, especially the drop in the fertility rate and the marriage rate. The population is rapidly aging, and it already may be constrained in labor supply. It's bad news for household formation in the longer run. And that's why there's a lot of articles written, you know, written in various media uh, that local demographers, they're speculating that the overall population could soon begin to shrink, or it was even estimate, overestimated in the past. So based on my understanding of developments, the prospect of a baby boom in the short to medium term doesn't look really good at all. It's simply because of the costs, not to mention the associated stress of having more children, you know, have reached basically unbearable levels. And that's why the authorities not only tighten the screws on the housing market, which has been around for quite a few years, right? We all know the mantra, houses are for living, not speculation. But that's why they made that rather almost somewhat unexpected, surprising decision to crack down on private education last, uh, last July or after school tutoring in order to ease the bottom line and really the social economic pressure of raising children. So it's not looking good at the end of the day. And I think, you know, the authorities will need to get a lot more creative or supportive to incentivize, uh, you know, the baby boom, you know, in the West, maybe we have subsidies, family allowance, or it may just simply come back to shift in labor's income share of the economic pie, or maybe even foster, you know, improved work-life balance. Uh, you know, we all heard about the 996, which is refers to working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, you know, as the that's really focused in the tech sector. That has, you know, it gains a lot of attention because people are under a lot of pressure. And that helps to explain why the baby boom hasn't come about in recent years. Art, uh, sticking with the long term, could you clarify what you think uh, China's longer term economic strategy is? It seems to have shifted away from growth. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's. I hear this one quite a lot. What I would say is the growth at all costs model, it's long gone. And that disappeared, honestly, five, six years ago. Uh, but I don't really think that growth has fallen down the priority list. As you know, China still wants to reach a high income status by the middle of next of the next decade, 2035. And that will, you know, according to my calculations, require China to still grow at around four and a half to five percent annually, 
which is still a tall order, even though China's been growing above 5% in recent years. But it's going to be a bigger challenge because, you know, one, there's greater friction with the West. And two, as the economy shifts more towards becoming a service-based economy, it's going to be harder to increase productivity. So this explains really why the current five-year plan, which was announced actually in late 2020, placed such a heavy emphasis on, you know, upgrading technological capabilities. It's all part of this rebranded dual circulation strategy, but it's really based on, you know, important substitution, trying to produce things domestically. And that's coming back down to producing high-end semiconductors, you know, moving into new areas such as artificial intelligence, you know, the whole green revolution. So China is looking to make, you know, headway in these in these new areas to try to prop up productivity, but it's not going to, to be easy. And, and another thing is, it's coming back to what I mentioned before, the common prosperity mantra, which is really all about addressing income inequality. That's not going to be that's not going to be easy either, and that's going to require a significant shift in how they formulate the budget, how they tax. So it's a lot of challenges there. Just circling back, it's not growth still remains very important, but they also have other things they're trying to achieve. I know we have covered a lot of ground, but can you uh, touch on China's decarbonization goals, uh, which clearly picked up last year? appear to have uh, contributed to a sharp rise in, in some metal prices. How serious is China about addressing climate change? Oh, I'm going to just jump in there before you answer, Art, if you don't mind. I just want to pipe in with some sort of like a, my own observation. Like I think China these days, is you know, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. They really want to reduce their carbon footprint, but that risks slower growth or a slower output. And officials, you know, would prefer not to have growth slow meaningfully. So it seems like that's what happened in 2021. There is this self-manufactured slowdown and then activities seem to slow too much. So due to power outages, so officials reopened up all the coal mines. So is there like a happy medium in there somewhere? Yeah, maybe I can address your question first, Jennifer, as I think it's maybe important to place a time frame on how to view the decarbonization challenge. So look, from a short-term perspective, growth or basically heating homes or keeping factories running, that will always trump, you know, decarbonization. Make no doubt about it. So I don't think the authorities are going to sacrifice growth in, in, in the short run. However, I would like to, to say, you know, what happened last year, you know, which culminated in, in the power crisis, you know, in, in September, October, and November. It was like a sort of a perfect storm, you know, of events, you know, it was due to the closure of efficient, inefficient coal mines, which was due to legitimate reasons to improve mine safety. And, you know, and uh, there was also the decision to cut imports of coal from Australia. And there was just various weather anomalies. And bottom line, there was just tremendous, you know, goods demand. But I think right now, you know, that sort of at least has sort of fallen to the background because the one thing is China has a lot of coal and they just were able to wrap it back up. However, sort of looking at things from the longer term, you know, tackling long-term climate change, I think it's something the authorities have, have shown they're willing to address. 
with greater vigor. And, and that was really highlighted back in uh, September 2021 when they announced, you know, their their targets for 2030 and, and 2060 to, to bring down their carbonization levels. You know, and, and another thing I would say is that, and, and maybe this is just the case, given, you know, it is very much a command-like economy is that they're, they have had the ability to take decisive actions over the past year. I mean, and so they've introduced CO2 limits for provinces. They've heavily promoted the sale of electric vehicles. They've curbed output in high pollutant industries such as steel and aluminum. And, you know, they're trying to build out their energy and wind and, you know, wind and solar power infrastructure. All which, you know, for metal producers around the world is actually good news because that's contributed to the high levels of aluminum, copper, and nickel prices. The reality is China still roughly accounts for 50% of global metals demand on an on a annual basis. I don't really see a let up in these type of developments. But if they really want to meet their longer term CO2 targets, the real question will come down to, can they address coal? You know, do they have that political willpower? Because the country is still heavily reliant on coal, because they simply have a lot of it available locally and it's cheap. So, are they willing to make that change and pass on prices? Another complicating factor is that their coal-fired power plants, you know, their fleet of them, they're relatively young, only 15 years versus, let's say, 40 years in the U.S. It's going to take a lot of willpower to abandon these these type of resources that they just recently built up. So it's not going to be an easy thing to overcome. Okay, well, thanks, uh, Art and uh, Jennifer, for your uh, great insights today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are now uh, better prepared to weigh China's outlook and risks in their short and long-term investment decisions. All the best, everyone. Thanks for listening to BMO Smarter Investing, podcast brought to you by BMO Investor Line. We're here to empower Canadians to invest smarter. For more information about how you can start investing today, visit bmo.com slash online investing. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get the latest episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts.